Hey, well, a special welcome to those of you who are visiting us for the first time. I'm sure that we, we have some here. I, I've met one person already. We always have some new newcomers, uh, first-timers. And um, inside of our, we're going to our time of teaching right now. Inside your weekend program, there's a white message note sheet that we use every week as we go through our time of teaching to help you follow along. So I'm going to pray and ask God to be with us during this time, and, uh, and then we're going to jump right in. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church, and thank you for what you're doing in our nation, even in the midst of these times. God, we come today because we, we realize we're with you on a journey as a church, that we want to be part of your movement, this movement that you started over 2,000 years ago. And God, that today is another step in that process, in that journey. And so as we've done hundreds of times, we've, we pray that you would come and be our teacher, that you would be uh, our Lord, that you would be the one who opens our eyes to see new truths, and that you would teach us especially this important lesson about spiritual truth today in the midst of a, a postmodern culture that is no longer believes in truth. God, we pray that you teach us the role it plays in our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today, last April. Uh, he was a college student. In fact, he was one of our college students here at Rocky Peak, and he signed up for this class at one of the local colleges. Uh, it was a ceramics class, a pottery class, and the reason he signed up was because it was easy. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, now, in high school, uh, he'd taken a class in pottery and really enjoyed it, and uh, now it's college, and he, he needed to meet an art requirement, and this fulfilled the art requirement, so he, he signed up for this class. It was an afternoon class. It was uh, in the spring semester. It was a Tuesday, Thursday class right after lunch, and, uh, and he, as he went in the class, uh, he, he realized he wasn't the only Christ follower in the class. In fact, right across from at the pottery table where they work was another uh, Christian. She happened to be go to here to Rocky Peak as well. And so um, they're in class, and, and we're about halfway through the semester now. And the, the prof in the class is like 45 years old, nice guy, warm personality, a real bright guy, but, um, uh, but definitely not a Christ follower. In fact, he, he was very secular. He'd probably call himself an atheist, an ag- agnostic. Um, and, uh, and yet he'd hear these students, these students from Rocky Peaks, college students, he would hear them talking about their relationship with God. He would hear them talking about their church. He'd hear them talking about their ministry. And so over the course of the semester, he would engage them from time to time about their, their faith. And this was one of those days. And, and so he came up and he was talking with them. And as they're talking about their faith and their relationship with Christ and so on, he said, you know, that's really good for you. You ever heard that? That's really good for you. He said, after all, you've grown up in this part of the world, and that's the message you've heard about Jesus, and, and so that's really good for you. Of course, if you'd grown up in a different part of the world, there'd be a different truth, and you'd heard of something different, and that would work for you. But whatever works for you, you know, whatever works for you. But, but for me, um, I, I don't believe that there's such a thing as absolute truth. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in for forever now, and uh, for those of you who are brand new, this is a, a, it's a study uh, called The Way. It's a study of the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. And if you're new at this whole Christianity thing, the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest leaders, uh, Christian thinkers, uh, Christ followers of all time. In this series, what we're doing is we're, we're coming alongside of him. And we're asking him to mentor us. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that Jesus started over 2,000 years ago that in the early church was first called the way? 
And so uh, every week our strategy is the same. We start off by taking a look at one of the Apostle Paul's longest and most famous letters, his letter to the Church of Rome. And then we use it to branch off from there into other writings when he touches on a particular topic. And so today we come to Romans chapter 10. Now, we're in the third mini-series in Romans. It's called Called and Chosen. It's uh, on chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in this section, the Apostle Paul is addressing a particular issue. And here is the question. Okay, Paul, in the first eight chapters of Romans, you've talked about how Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. He's come to rescue Israel and rescue the world. And, and so we, we got you. We got you. We, you know, we're following you. But we got one problem. And the problem is if Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the one who will rescue Israel, then why is it that most Jews are not responding to the message about Jesus? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, if this is the plan that God has, he's made this promise, why isn't it working? I mean, has God changed his mind? Um, is God no longer working with the Jewish nation? Are they long his chosen people? Um, is he going back on his promise? Is he not keeping his word? Like, what's up with this? And so the Apostle Paul is addressing that question. And He's going to give us a couple answers. We saw the first answer last week. He says, well, really two sides of this coin. On the one side, that what's happening with Israel is part of God's plan. It's his choice that they've kind of rejected the Messiah, and he's chosen to use their kind of rebellion at this time to take the message of Jesus faster to the non-Jewish nations of the world, Gentile nations. And so part of this is part of God's plan and part of God's choice. But the second answer, as we'll see today in chapter 10, is it's also part of Israel's choice. That the reason they're not responding to Jesus as the Messiah is because they don't like the message. They, they don't like the implications. Have you ever had that in your life? Is it maybe when you first came to Christ, maybe there was a struggle there? Because there was a part of you that said, oh, this is, I think this is true. Shoot. <laughs> you know, it's like... Like, oh, what are the implications of this for my life? I mean, this part of my life have to, might have to change, and this part of my life might have to change. And it's like, uh, I think this is good news, I think. And, 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 so, and so that's kind of where Israel was at, is that they didn't like the implications of the message of Jesus. And so by their choice, they were choosing not to listen. And so God had revealed himself with the message of his truth, and yet they didn't like his truth. And so they were kind of looking after their own truth, that, that sort of thing. And so in the process today, uh, the Apostle Paul wants to talk to us about the topic of truth, spiritual truth, and the important role it plays in our life, in our, in our growth, in our, our walk with God. And so um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start off in chapter 9, at the end of, verse, uh, after, end of chapter 9, verse uh, 30. And I've got to warn you that, uh, as I mentioned last week, the Apostle Paul is uh, often hard to follow, especially in Romans, because he... he uh, he assumes we know the Bible like the back of our hand, right? And, and today it's not so much all these stories he's going to refer to, but he's going to throw out all these quotations from the Old Testament, just assuming that we kind of understand where they're from and what they're all about. And since most of us don't know the Bible like, like Paul did, um, I just want to point out that in your note sheets or uh, in your Bibles, if you have a good Bible, um, in your Bible, after, the quote, after every quotation, there'll be a little, uh, like a footnote, like a, I mean, C or D or an E, and there'll be a footnote at the bottom of the page uh, telling you um, where that passage came from. So I won't be stopping for everyone explaining it all, but you can be able to see where the passage came from. Now, if you don't have a Bible like that, uh, you might want to look for an upgrade. Um, 
because the 09 version's coming out, you know, Bible 09, and you can probably get a coupon somewhere, just like Quicken or something. Um, and, but uh, if you don't have those in your Bible for today, you've got uh, on your note sheet, I put all the verses in the order that they, they come so you can find them later, all right? So let's look at this, uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. Now, I've got to warn you, it's a tough passage. Um, it's a long passage, and so you're just going to have to sit up, pay attention, do your best right now, okay? You're going to wipe out the Dodgers, forget the, the last four outs of that game. We're right, we're ready to go, all right? All right, here we go, chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? Um, now, remember last week we ended up in chapter 9. Paul had pointed out here's this phenomena going on where um, the Jews, who are the chosen people, are not coming to the Messiah. And you've got the Gentiles, who are not the chosen people, who are coming to the Messiah. And that both sides of this coin are predicted by the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Hosea. And so he says in verse 30, so what shall we say then? Well, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they're not even seeking after God, they've obtained it. But it's a righteousness that is by faith. In other words, it's not a performance-based relationship with God. It's a righteousness by trust in Christ. But Israel, on the other hand, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. So they've been pursuing a relationship with God. They're really into the relationship with God, but they've been pursuing it the wrong way as if they had to earn it. And so they don't have a relationship with God. So verse 32, well, why not? Why don't they have the relationship? Because they pursued it not by faith, by trusting in Christ, but as if it were by works. They're going to earn it the old-fashioned way. So they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, and he quotes from Isaiah, uh, God speaking, and God says, see, I lay in Zion. Zion was the mountain outside of Jerusalem. Say, I lay in Zion, a stone that causes men to stumble. God says, I'm building a new house. I'm building a new movement, a new building. And I'm laying this foundation stone, this cornerstone. And he says, and, and some people are going to st- trip over the cornerstone. They're going to stumble over the stone. And then some people are going to believe in the stone. And of course, in this context, it's the Jewish nation that's tripping over the stumbling stone, which is a uh, prophetic term for Christ. Right? And, and it's the Gentile nations who are trusting in the stumbling stone. So he says, um, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes some men to stumble and a rock that makes him fall, but the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so God's doing something new in the Messiah, the nation of Israel. He says he's going to stumble over that Messiah, but those who trust in him like the Gentiles, they're never going to be a saint. You're never, never going to be sorry for trusting in Jesus in your life. You're never going to say, man, that was a mistake. Right? Now, Chapter 10 and verse 1. So brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Remember, Paul was a Jewish man. He had once been where they were now. He once didn't get Jesus any better than they did. And his heart goes out to them. Remember back in chapter 9, he said, if it were up to me, I'd be willing to give up my eternal salvation if if it would help them come to Christ. He says, verse 2, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Now, I want you to underline that phrase, zealous for God. It's a very key phrase today. Um, what he's saying is that the, the Jewish people of his day were passionate about their relationship with God. They took the relationship with God with very seriously. They were very sincere, very committed. We would say today they're very spiritual people. Their whole lives revolved around their religion, right? So they're very zealous for God, but their zeal 
is not based on knowledge. So they're, they're kind of running really hard, but they're running the wrong direction. Okay? So it's not based on knowledge or truth. Since they didn't know about the righteousness that comes from God, not that they never heard of it, but they just didn't get it, <clears throat> they, they sought to establish their own righteousness, and they didn't submit to God's righteousness. So catch this. This is the core of what we're talking about today. You see this? They, they were not willing to submit to God's righteousness. They weren't willing to submit to God's truth. Now, why? Because of the implications. For example, many of the Jews in Paul say they, they really didn't like this idea that you'd be made right with God apart from your performance. They've been raised to believe that it was your performance that, that made you right with God. And so this whole idea of being made right with God apart from your performance, didn't like that idea. Um, they'd also been raised to believe that they were part of the Jewish nation, and just by being a biological son of Abraham, that you were automatically in, you know? And so they didn't like the idea that they weren't automatically in just by being a Jew. Um, they didn't like this idea that the Gentiles were now being called into this Messiah movement. You know, it's like, that was no, it's a Jewish thing. So there was a lot of things they didn't like about the message of Jesus. And so what Paul says is they weren't willing to submit to this truth, you see? Have you ever had a truth in your life that you know is pressing in on You just do not want to submit to that truth, <laughs> okay? Since they weren't willing to submit. So last week we saw it was God's choice that there was reason Israel wasn't responding. This week the emphasis is on their choice. They don't want to submit to this truth because of the implications. Now, Paul wants to kind of spell out for us a little bit more this two approaches to God. You know, there's always been these two approaches to God. One is a performance-based approach. One is a faith-based approach. We've been talking about this all through Romans. So he's going to go back to the Old Testament, and he's going to quote some scriptures to illustrate how a performance-based approach to God works, how a faith-based approach to God works. And so he says, Moses, verse 5, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law, kind of the performance-based approach. The man who does these things will live by them. That's how it works, performance-based. This is what you need to do. If you do it, you will live, okay? You'll be rewarded. He says, but the righteousness that's by faith, the faith-based uh, relationship goes like this. And he's going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30. That's kind of an odd quote. We'll come back to it. But it, here's what Deuteronomy says. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That's Deuteronomy 30. And he says, um, Paul then inserts this. By the way, parentheses, Paul speaking now. Uh, that is to bring Christ down. Or, back to Deuteronomy 30, who will descend into the deep? Paul puts this in parentheses. That is to bring up Christ from the dead. Uh, but what does it say? This is back in Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Now, what's he talking about? Well, back in Deuteronomy 30, the nation of Israel is about ready to go in the promised land. Moses is not going to get to go with them. And so he gives them a final <coughs> sermon series on what it takes to succeed in the promised land. We call that sermon series the book of Deuteronomy, okay? And so at the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, Paul says, I mean, uh, Moses says, now listen, I've told you what it's going to take to succeed in the promised land. You don't need someone to go up to heaven to talk to God to find out what it's going to take. You don't need someone to go down to the depths of the earth to find out what it's going to take to succeed. 
the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's what I've shared with you. You know what it takes to succeed okay, to, in the promised land. Say, yeah. Now, in the New Testament, Paul picks up that passage, and he says, let's apply it to this situation with Israel. He says, God has told Israel what it takes to succeed in this new relationship with God. Is that we don't need someone to go up to heaven to find out what it's going to take because Jesus has already come down from heaven with the message. We don't need to send someone to the depths of the earth to figure out what it's going to take to have a relationship with God because Jesus has already been there. He's risen from the grave. The word is close to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. God has shown you what it takes to have a relationship. Well, what does it take? Well, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so what's it take to be saved and come into a relationship with God? Paul says it takes two things. First, you have to confess Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? It means that we have to come to a place in our life where we realize that Jesus of Nazareth is actually the Lord Almighty of the universe. And that not only do we realize who Jesus is, but we are willing to submit to his leadership in our life. That we confess that he is our Lord, you see. And he says, and you have to believe in your heart that Jesus has come down from heaven. That he's come to earth, he's lived his life, he's died for us, and God raised him from the dead on our behalf. So you have to confess Jesus is Lord, you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you are willing to embrace that truth, then you will be saved, okay? Now, this, of course, is the truth that Israel, at this point in their national history as a whole, was not willing to embrace. And so this is the truth that's holding them back from from moving into this relationship with God. And he goes on, verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, quoting Isaiah again, or verse 10 rather. For it is with your uh, heart that you believe and are justified. You're made right with God. Remember Romans 5, that we've been justified by faith in Christ through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so he says, with, it's, with your, um, it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess, you take your stand. I'm a Christ follower and you're, and you're saved. For as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And by anyone there, he's talking anyone Jew or Gentile. There's not two different rules, two different rule books for Jew and Gentile. We all have sinned and we'll all fall short of the glory of God. We've already said that back in chapter three. There's all are only one way to God through Jesus, uh, whether you're Jew or Gentile. He said that in chapter three. That's what he's talking about here. And it becomes really clear in the next verse, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile because the same Lord, remember whoever calls in the name of the Lord, Jesus is Lord, right? There's no difference because uh, the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all those who call on him. And he quotes Isaiah again, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, verse 13, it's actually a quote from um, Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2. And if you were to study that passage, what you'd see, it's, uh, Joel's talking about kind of the end times, and he says that in the end times, it's going to be really ugly. But he says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Joel, it's very clear on who the Lord is. Is the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, right? In, in, the, in the Old Testament, the book of Joel, it's talking about the God of Israel. 
And so it's really interesting here is the Apostle Paul now takes this quote that said, everyone who calls on the Lord, the God of Israel, will be saved, and he applies it to Jesus. And he says, what we have to confess is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord that we have to call on. So he's identifying Jesus with the Lord of the Old Testament. You see what's going on, and we'll talk about that more later on. And so in verse, uh, now he kind of imagines someone in the crowd. Remember, Paul often has these kind of uh, hypothetical conversations with people in the crowd as part of his technique of teaching. And he says, okay, well, let's just imagine that there's someone in the crowd now that um, it says, wait a second, Paul, you're saying the reason that Israel is not being saved is they're not willing to accept this truth, but maybe that's not the real reason. Maybe they just haven't heard. They haven't heard the message of Jesus. They haven't heard the message of the Messiah. No one's been sent to tell them. You know, they just, they just don't know yet. And so he runs through some questions. He says, well, how then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? I mean, how can you call on the name of the Lord if you haven't believed in him yet? And, and how can you believe in one that you haven't heard of? And how can you hear unless someone's preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? You see, so someone, like maybe they just haven't really heard. Uh, and he quotes Isaiah, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And Paul says, yeah, I don't think that's it. In verse 16, he says, because if you look back at Isaiah's time, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. It's something deeper going on here. For Isaiah says, way back in his time, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith, it's kind of summing it up, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard from the word of Christ. So for someone to come into relationship with God, someone has to share the message of the Messiah with them. They've got to hear. That's how we believe. When someone shares the message of the Messiah, that Jesus is Lord, then we can, our, we can respond in faith, we can believe, and we can enter into relationship. Unless someone shares the message, we can't do that. And so, but, but Paul says, but you know what? That's not really the problem because, in verse 18, but I ask, did they not hear? Has Israel not heard? Well, of course they did. Quote Psalm 19, their voice has gone in, out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So he says, again, I ask, did Israel not understand? Is that it? Maybe they heard, they just didn't get it. And now he's going to go back and finish up with a couple of quotes from the Old Testament. And what he's going to say again is, no, no, here's what's going on. The Old Testament predicted that when the Messiah came, the Jews would not respond. They predicted the Gentiles would respond. And it predicted that one day the Gentiles were experiencing God in such a fresh way it would make the Gentiles, I mean the Jews, jealous and they'll want some of that and then they will come to God. So it kind of predicted this order. Rejection by the Jews, acceptance by the Gentiles, acceptance by the Jews that we'll get to next week in chapter 11. So he goes back to the Old Testament, verse 19. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. So he's talking to Israel here. And he says, Israel, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, by the Gentiles, in other words. Um, and I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, hey, I was found, but God says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. That's the Gentiles. I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. But, continuing, but concerning Israel, God says all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so we're back where we started the chapter now. You've got Israel that is seeking God but not finding him. 
You've got the Gentiles not seeking God and yet finding him. And the only difference between the two groups is the reaction to the truth, their willingness to embrace and submit to the truth of God. Now, okay, long passage. You did a great job, uh, most of you. Um, you did a great job. Long passage, complicated passage, hard to follow passage. You're doing a really good job. We've only got one more week of this, right? Chapter 11, tough week, and then we're in smooth sailing from that point on. Um, and so, good job. Tough passage, hard passage, hard to follow, uh, complicated, and yet there are some three like very simple and profound truths that just jump out at me from this passage that are extremely important for us as Christ followers living in the midst of a postmodern culture right now. And there on your note sheet, so you have a section that's called the Truth Principles, Pursuing God in a Postmodern World. And, and, and I want to just go through these, and i got to warn you, all three of these are going to sound very simple on the surface. Almost like they're like the duh principles, you know, like duh, I get it. You know, I came to church, of course they're going to say that. Um, but, but, but underneath the surface of these kind of seemingly simple principles, there's some really profound truth that's going to be really impact us today for how we interact with our culture. So here we go. Number one, the first thing that jumps out for me in this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying, is that truth matters. Okay? That, that when it comes to our relationship with God, that what we believe about God, who he is, how he works, how our relationship, it really matters. It's a matter of life and death. Truth matters. That there really is a God, um, and he's a very real person like you or like me, and we can't just recreate him in our own image and do whatever works for us, right? That, that he's a real God and that, that we have to do what works for him. And it's like we have to fit to him, not he fit to us. Um, this was a mistake that the Jews in Paul's day were making, is, is they were pursuing God really hard, but they were not accepting the truth about who God was. They were trying to make up their own truth. And I want you to see this in chapter 10 and verse 2. I just want to highlight this. We looked at this as we went over it, but I just want to highlight it again. Paul says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Now let me ask you something. Have you ever known someone who is not a Christ follower? And I'm not looking for a show of hands here, but, but have you ever known someone who's not a Christ follower, but they're zealous for God? Well, like, of course. The world's full of people like that. They, they might be zealous for Buddhism. They could be zealous for Mormonism. They could be zealous for Jehovah's Witness uh, uh, religion. They could be zealous for Islam. Right? And so oh, across the world, you got a ton of people who are zealous for God. Uh, and the Jews were zealous for God. But he, but he goes on and he says, but their zeal is not based on what? Knowledge. Say it again. It's not based on knowledge. That's another way of saying it's not based on truth. Right? And what Paul wants us to understand is that we can be incredibly zealous for God, extremely spiritual people, very committed to what we believe. But if we believe the wrong thing, it doesn't do us any good. In fact, in many ways, we're in, in more serious trouble. Because just think of it. Would you rather be going on the wrong path at five miles an hour in your car or 100 miles an hour in your car? It's like, you know, it, like, really, the faster you're going, the worse it is if you're going the wrong direction, right? 
And so Paul says, man, these, their people are zealous for God. They are totally into God. They order their days about God. They pray all the time. They go to their synagogue all the time. They read the scriptures. These people are zealous for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. It's not in accordance with truth. Truth matters. What we believe really matters. Now, this is one of the biggest mistakes we're making as a culture today. And one of my big concerns for us as followers of Jesus is we don't get sucked into it. Because we live in the midst of a culture, this is becoming standard operating procedure. This is just kind of the philosophy of our age. You find what works for you, I find what works for me. As long as you don't put your thing on me and I don't put my thing on you, as long as it works for you, we're all good. There's the assumption that all paths lead the same way, that it's all, it's all really the same thing, just different words for, for the, you know, just different names for, for things or whatever. And I just want you to catch how powerful this is that Paul's saying, no, 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 this is a matter of life and death. You know, we, uh, I started the day with a story of this uh, young man from Rocky Peak, uh, one of our college students, in this class um, at one of the local colleges. And it was such an interesting, uh, uh, such a great conversation that he had with this prop, this 45-year-old class, you know, real bright guy, a uh, warm, winsome guy steps into their, their midst, the midst of their conversation, says, hey, that's great for you. You know, you were raised in this part of the world. That's what you believe in. But if you're raised in a different part of the world, you believe something different, whatever works for you. But I don't believe in absolute truth. And, and in saying that, he's really sort of just speaking our culture, isn't he? He's just kind of, he's just putting into words what our culture believes. Um, the interesting thing was, the great thing about that conversation is the student was re- ready for him. He was ready to speak a word. And, and what he said is, uh, he just kind of had some fun with them. And he said, um, wait a second. Um, did you just say that you don't believe in absolute truth? He said, yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. Wait a second. So you don't believe that there's anything that is absolutely true all the time. And there's just certain things that are absolutely true, absolutely right, absolutely wrong. You, you don't believe in absolute truth. No, I don't believe in absolute truth. I, I believe that all truth is relative. Wait a minute, are you serious with me? You, you honestly believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. Yeah, that's right, that's, that's what I'm saying. He said, well, that very statement is an absolute truth. You know, when you make a statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth. That is an absolute truth, right? And he said, the blood just drained out of this professor's face. And he was just shocked. He'd never thought about it. So you could tell he was embarrassed. He didn't know what to say. And what's interesting to me is, is how is it that a 45-year-old college professor, bright, warm, and witty guy, had never thought about that? I'll tell you why. Because when you live and you're part of a culture, there's certain things that become so much a part of the culture you don't even realize you're assuming them anymore. Like, like the, the goldfish in the bowl doesn't realize it's in water. It's the only world he knows. He only knows he's in water when he's out of water. Something's wrong. <laughs> I need to get back in there, right? But he's just, he's just surrounded by the water you don't even know. And here's what's happening. Man. When we as Christ followers, we are surrounded by a world that's telling us in a million ways every day that what you believe doesn't matter as long as you believe it sincerely, right? 
And, and so Paul comes and says, man, don't you believe it? What you believe is a matter of life and death, right? So number one, truth matters. Now, number two, the second kind of simple, almost obvious and yet not so obvious truth, and so hang with me on this one, is, is it goes like this. Jesus, according to this passage, Jesus is the truth. That's what Paul wants us to get. Not only does truth matter, but bottom line, the most important truth in all of life is that Jesus is the truth. Now, I want you to catch this. I want to catch you what, what I did not just say. I did not just say that Jesus teaches the truth. That is true. That's not what I said. I didn't say that Jesus leads us to the truth. Oh, that's also true, but it's not, what, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying something that is much bigger, much broader, much uh, a bigger statement, is that Jesus is the truth, that he is the source of all truth. And to get at this, I want us to go back to something that Jesus said. It's, it's a very famous statement. Probably a lot of you are familiar with the statement. You may not be familiar, chances are, probably not familiar with the context. It's in John chapter 14, and I'd like you to turn there. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14, so left in your Bible. John chapter 14, it's, um, it's Jesus' last night with his men before he's arrested. So he's trying to prepare them for leaving, for his leaving. And he says, man, I'm about ready to leave. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll be coming back to get you. Don't worry about it. You know the way to where I'm going. And one of his men pipes up and says, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. Like, how do we know the way? And Jesus says, oh, don't worry about it. This way is not like a physical road or something. Like, it's I am the way. Like, if you know me and have a relationship with me, you're going to get where you need to go. So don't, don't worry about it. And then he goes on. He makes this famous statement. It's John chapter 14 and verse 6. He says, uh, I am the way, and I am the truth. Notice that, not a truth. I am the truth. I am the life. Now, notice what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying here, I'm telling you the truth. He's not saying, I am. I am going to point out the path to life. What Jesus is saying is, I am the truth. I am the life. Catch this. All truth, all life comes from me, he's saying. I am the creator of the universe. All truth, all life come from me. Now, that's a pretty big statement, isn't it? And you say, well, how do you know that's what he means? Well, look what he says next. Verse 7, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. You've seen my Father. You've seen God. And so Philip says to him, one of his men says, Lord, would you show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Could you just, could you just like show us God before you leave? Could you just like, this would just be really cool, Jesus, like a going away present. Could you just like show us God? You know, like, you know, like Moses in the Old Testament, God can't see your face. Just kind of that thing. Could you show us God? That's all we have. Just show us the Father. Now look what he says. One of the most profound statements in the New Testament. Verse 9. Jesus answers him, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time? I mean, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
Philip, are you kidding me? <laughs> man, it's three years, man. This was our last night together. I, I was hoping you, you'd like figure this out by now. Three years, man, that's a long time. Have I been with you such a long time? Don't you get it? Don't you realize who I am? How can you ask me that question? Don't you realize who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father. Wow. Okay, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense as I am the truth, I am the life. It now makes sense. It now makes sense because before it didn't really make sense, but now it makes sense if he is the source of all creation. If to see him is to see the Father, now it suddenly makes sense when he says, I am the truth. I am the life. There is no truth outside of me. There is no life outside of me. I am the source of all life. I am the source of all truth. Think with me back to the beginning of John's gospel. John puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. So separate from God. But the Word was God. Do you remember that? And it says that through him all things were made, and without him nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. You see? At the end of that prologue in John's first uh, gospel, he says, no man has seen God at any time, but God, the one and only, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. You see, you see what's going on here? That God has come and revealed himself in Christ. And the reason that he is the way, the truth, and the life is because he is the source of all. You see? That's what he's trying to say. Now, I understand that in our culture today, this is hard for people. Uh, this is hard. Like, people will come up to you and they'll say, like, I, I really want to seek out, you know, God. I'm just not so into this Jesus thing, right? It's, kind of, it's like, it seems so narrow to me. You Christians are so narrow. Um, this is kind of this whole Jesus thing, you know, like Jesus is the only way. And, and I totally get that. As, as a child of our culture, one who feels the culture pressing in on me all the time, I, I totally get that, how it seems weird. But once you realize who Jesus is, it suddenly the, the problem goes away. It makes, everything goes away, doesn't it? Because it's like this. Like, let's say, you know, we're going to have an election in uh, a month. We're going to decide who our next president is going to be. And, uh, and let's say that now we're post-election. Um, let's say it's January next year, maybe February. And you say, I would love to meet the new president. And you say, great. Uh, let's go meet him. His name is, and it could be either John McCain or Barack Obama, but let's just pick one, and then we'll flip-flop back and forth, so I'll be bipartisan here. But uh, let's just say, okay, it's Barack Obama. You know, I don't want to meet Barack Obama. I didn't vote for Barack Obama. I want to meet the president, but I don't want to meet Barack Obama. It's like, uh, excuse me, um, Barack Obama is the president. If you want to meet the president, you have to meet Barack Obama. No, but I don't like Barack Obama. I didn't vote for him. I don't agree with his policies. I don't want to meet Barack. I just want to meet the president. But you see, this is exactly what our culture is doing. They're coming and saying, I want to know God. Okay, let me tell you, his name is Jesus. But I don't like Jesus. 
Who else do you have? Are there any other candidates? I didn't vote for Jesus. I voted for Buddha. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? It's like, hey, Jesus is not being narrow-minded. He's just telling you the way it is. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not arbitrarily making it up. He's just telling you the fact of life. I am the source of all life. I am the truth. If you want to know the life, if you want to know the truth, you're going to have to go through me because I'm the only one there is. You see? I am the source of all. That's what he's telling us. Now, that's what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 10 in a very profound way. He's saying, what does it take for a man to come into relationship with God? What does it take for a woman to come into relationship with God? He says, you have to come to a place where you confess Jesus as Lord. Well, what does that mean? I already told you in Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord is the Lord Almighty. He says, what has to happen in a man or a woman's life as we come to the place where we realize that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of the universe. You see, there is no other God. And when you come to that place in your life and you realize that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, he lived, he died, he rose again for you, and you come and you say, I realize that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of all creation, and I submit my life to his lordship, and I believe he died for me and rose for me, Paul says, once you get there, you're ready to get saved. Because now you're able to call on the name of the Lord, and everyone who can call on the Lord will be saved, you see? Now, this is not just a Romans 10 thing, of course. It's not just a John 14 thing. This is the New Testament perspective on Jesus. And there in your note sheet, you have in Colossians chapter 1 a couple statements the Apostle Paul makes about Jesus and who he is as Lord. And let's look what he says. Colossians 1. He is the visible, he is the image of the invisible God. I like the way one translator puts it that he's the visible image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Not firstborn in the sense like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will teach that he was like God created him first, then he created everything else. But firstborn in the Old Testament sense, you know, in the firstborn of a family had certain family rights. Jesus is creator of the universe and is part of that universe to, to save that universe. He has certain rights to the firstborn over the creation. And so the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers, rulers, authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. He holds the universe, every molecule that moves, he holds it together. You see, he is the Lord of the cosmos. Uh, Colossians 2, my purpose, Paul says, is that they, these new Christians, may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden, catch this, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see? Here's a question for you. How big is your Jesus? You see? How big is your Jesus? Do you realize who he is? And Paul says when you come to the place, you realize who he is, and you're ready to submit to his lordship, you're ready to be saved. And I want to say this, that there may be some of you here today, you might be here for the first time, you might be here a million times, 
But for whatever reason, you've never come to a place in your life where you've said, Jesus is my Lord. I confess him as my Lord. I get it who he is. I get why he died. I get why he rose again. And I'm ready to submit my life to come under his lordship. I want to confess him as my Lord. And you've never done that. But today you say, I want a relationship with God. I want to know the real God. I want to enter into a relationship. I want that. Then today you're going to have that opportunity. In just a few minutes, I'm going to give you a chance to confess Jesus as your Lord and to come step over the line and become a Christ follower. And so get you prepared for that. Now, number three. The third simple truth that jumps out but is so important from this passage is that truth must be shared or truth must be spoken. That, that truth is powerful, as we've seen. Truth has the power to unlock our lives. In fact, remember what Jesus said in John 8, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That truth has the power to unlock your life. It has the power to change your life, whether it's your relationship with God, your relationship with others, that truth is powerful stuff. But in order for truth to work, it has to be spoken. Like think back in your life. Who was it that first spoke the truth that Jesus is Lord in your life? And maybe it was a parent when you were young. Maybe it was a friend growing up. Maybe it was a coworker. It was a relative. It was a TV preacher or a radio or a book. But who spoke the word? Someone spoke the word to you, right? Someone took their mouth and they articulated the message of Jesus. And what this principle is saying is that the truth to be effective has to be spoken. Okay? In other words, as Christ's followers, it's not enough for us as part of his movement, it's not enough to live a good life and be a good example. There comes a time where if we're going to release the truth to do its work, we have to speak the words. We have to say the words, you see. Now, Paul's, this is what he's getting at in chapter 10 of Romans. If you look back there in verses 14 through 15 and verse 17, these rhetorical questions. Remember someone in the crowd saying, but wait a second, maybe the Jews haven't responded, they just haven't heard the message. And he asks these four rhetorical questions. How can they call on the one, verse 14, They've not believed it. How can they believe in one whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they're sent? You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, yeah, you're right. I mean, in order for them to respond, they have to hear the message. Someone has to be sent. Someone has to speak the words. Someone has to tell them. He sums it up in verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. If no one shares the message, we can't respond in faith. You see? And he says, of course, the message is heard through the word of Christ. So it's no one speaking into our lives. The truth remains dormant. Like you may know the truth. We all carry the truth with us as Christ followers. But unless we speak it, it doesn't have the power to transform. Now, this doesn't mean that we are all called to be little mini evangelists, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. It certainly doesn't mean that we're called to be weird. Usually, when we talk about witnessing, we assume that we're about to start getting weird, right? That we're one of those Christians who's going to try to insert Jesus into every conversation. Uh, and, and we're going to, you know, that if we will just kind of say the right little spiritual words, that everyone's going to get saved. And the reality is they're just... 
They're not saying, you know, what shall I do to be saved? Uh, calling on the Lord. They're just asking to be saved from us, you know? And I know because I speak from experience. I went through a period of my life I did this. You know, you're just trying to speak into every situation, get a word in every, and it's pretty soon it's just people just avoid you. He's weird. He's one of those. What do you mean? He's a Christian. Oh, I get it. You know? And so we've often made a bad name for ourselves thinking that we need to, remember what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 4. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. He said, he said, be wise in the way that you operate towards outsiders. Remember? He said, make the most of every opportunity. Be ready to go. He said, but, he said, let your speech be uh, full of grace, winsome, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so you might know how to respond. You know what Paul is saying? Hey, just be yourself. Just live your life honestly before people. They're going to ask. And when they ask, just be ready to share a word. It doesn't have to be the whole the whole message, just share a word. Just share a word of grace. Just to share a winsome word. It was so beautiful. And this story that I started the day with, the story goes on. You know, the professor, he's, uh, he's now kind of, he's got that shocked uh, deer in the headlight look. Because it's never dawned on him that, that he staked his whole spiritual life on a self-contradictory statement. And so he says to my young friend, he says, um, would it be okay if I go home and think about this and get back to you? But my young friend was great. He says, yeah, that'd be great. And so, so this, he, he gave him a graceful out. And, and he came back. And you know, in the days and the weeks that would come, they would have many conversations in class about Jesus. And with all those students listening in. And you know what? He was ready to speak the word. You see? He was raised to speak the word. He wasn't being evangelistic. They're just, he's just sitting at his pottery desk with another Christian from Rocky Peak that they would just talk about the Lord as they would normally just share in their life. You see, the, they're just being themselves. The professor is listening in. He enters in, answers the questions. He's not that tough. Just, just kind of, but they spoke the word. Now, did that... 45-year-old professor come to Christ? No. I don't think that at this point in his life he likes the implications that Jesus might be Lord. But remember, God has not called us to save everyone, but he's called us to speak the truth. Uh, The Jews in Paul's day, they weren't buying most of Paul's message. Most Jews weren't buying it, but it didn't stop him from speaking it. And there were Gentiles who were coming, and there were some Jews who were coming. And some will respond, right? And so the truth has to be spoken. So we live in the midst of this post-modern culture. And Paul comes to us with a very up-to-date message. He says, men and women, don't be fooled. This hey, truth matters. It's a life and death issue. Jesus is the truth. He's the Lord of the universe. All truth is from him. All truth is God's truth. And for truth to be unleashed through your life, hey, you need to be ready to speak it. Because how can they believe if they've never even heard? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture, a tough one to follow, but powerful in what it's teaching about the power of truth, the priority of truth. The truth doesn't bend for any man. 
or any woman. And so, God, we pray that you'd give us the wisdom and the courage as a church to embrace the truth about life, even in the midst of a culture that doesn't believe such a truth exists, and that we would not only embrace it, but we'd be bold to speak it appropriate ways at appropriate times so that truth could set people free. We pray this in Christ's name. Now, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to those of you who have never yet confessed Jesus as Lord. And you, right now, you sense God working in your life. You sense him calling to you. For whatever reason, right here and now, today, as I've been teaching, it's come clear to you, perhaps clearer than any other time in your life, that Jesus is Lord. And the story of his death and resurrection, his life is true, and you know it's for you, and you sense God calling you right now. And all it takes for you to come into relationship with God for eternity is for you to call on the name of the Lord and ask him to rescue you and submit your life to his leadership, and he will respond. And as we study today, that you will never be disappointed with that decision. And so if that's where you are today, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if this expresses the desire of your heart, you just pray along with me and for the rest of us as Christ followers, be praying for those who are making this decision right now. Just pray with me. Dear Jesus, I confess you as Lord. I believe in you, in your life, in your death, in your resurrection for me. I ask you to forgive me for my rebellion. I ask you to come in and take over my life and lead it to be my Lord. I ask you to save a spot in eternity for me. So our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you just prayed that prayer, the Lord has responded. He's come into your life if you are sincere. And we would like to know about that decision and we need you to confess that decision before us. And so I would like to ask you, in a couple of minutes, we take the offering. There's some registration card, uh, card inside of your weekend program. Just fill it out. And if you just say in the back, I, Mike, I prayed the prayer, or I asked Christ into my life, or I confessed Jesus as Lord, something to that effect, I'll know exactly what you mean. I will send you a letter this week with some steps to your next, and your journey, okay, next steps in your journey with Christ. Well, the first next step is to be baptized as a public statement that you're confessing Jesus as your Lord. And so we will call you this week to set that up. And so if that's right, just write that on the card and then turn that in when we take the offering. So Lord, now we come as your church. We pray you be with us as we continue and worship you as the only one, the one who's unique, uh, of the, the creator of all heaven and earth, the one that we worship. We pray this in your name. Amen.